Okay, if you got your Bibles, open to Psalm 15 and then Genesis chapter 39. Psalm 15 and Genesis chapter 39. For those of you going along with us, you'll know it is the Christmas season, but typically we preach through our series up until December the 15th, and then starting December 15th, December 22nd, and then Christmas Eve, we will be walking through the Advent messages. Just know that those are coming up. Uh, But these next two weeks, we're going to finish off the story of Potiphar uh, and Joseph and uh, just what he has to navigate uh, in this circumstance. So here's the deal. We called last week's message a message adulting, and this week's is adulting part two. We're going to go through the story because the story of Potiphar and Joseph living in his house really encompass what it means to be an adult. Sometimes there are things uh, that you have to do in order to live godly uh, that cause you great trouble or difficulty at the time, but in the end, you will be very, very proud that you did. So today, this is so interesting. Remember, we preach scripture from the top to the bottom. We work through each of the verses. None of you are here by accident. We're going to talk today about failure. Failure is something that every adult must understand. You can't win all the time. Remember that song, all you do is win, 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 no matter what, 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 all right? That cannot be everybody. It's just the way that it works. And in a city that's built on the winners controlling the city and the losers being pushed out, winning can be so important that sometimes we forget your call is not to win. Your call is to be godly. Your call is to be a disciple. The Lord wins in the end through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But for us, we are called to be godly and to live as disciples. Many times that goes along with winning for the kingdom. But winning itself, what we've got to do is we've got to suffer and at times to fail in a godly manner. Again, if you're taking notes, Psalm 15, we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to address this question today. When is the last time that you failed at something? When's the last time that you failed at something? Failure is hard. And just for the record, it's a room filled with very, very capable, strong, intelligent, charismatic people. And here's the deal. I don't think you fail very often. I'm going to be honest. I think that in a room like this, I think we've got a room full of winners. You've heard me say this before, but for you to stay in D.C. or for you to get to D.C., I think that it takes a lot of drive, ambition, and determination to where, again, you can hear that soundtrack, all you do is win, 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 no matter what, 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 in your head. Winning is a part of who you are, but godliness, even when we fail, there are going to be some opportunities where the Lord sets us up because we need to learn how to fail in a godly manner. This is not in your notes, but I want to give this quote to you. You ready? Humility is taught and not inherited. Let me say that again. Humility is taught and not inherited. None of you were born humble juggernauts, all right? None of you were born with humility as your main spiritual gift. It is crafted and shaped into you. Humility is something that is taught, not inherited. And God loves you enough to fill you with great talents, to fill you with great capabilities, to fill you with great drive and determination. But he loves you enough to also allow you to be chastened and taught humility. So when's the last time you failed at something? I don't know about you, but... When I fail, I almost, or excuse me, when I experience success and then failure comes along, I can turn into a toddler. We're trying to teach our daughter Harper how to fail right now. She's the one who's super competitive. Keisha, you lived with Autumn. Autumn, my wife, is super, super competitive. And back in the day, okay, Autumn, again, if Autumn lost, I mean, she would wear that loss for a week. I mean, she just hates losing, just who she is. And it was passed down to our sweet daughter Harper. I'm more the happy-go-lucky fun one, right? And uh, and again, just kind of rolls on back 
Like, I love to compete, but I'm, I can kind of navigate those situations. Well, Autumn, again, hates to lose on any level. And Harper has got that as well, our five-year-old. So we've been trying to teach her a little term that she can say when she goes through a time of losing. And here's what we do. Harper will lose, and then she melts down, and then really we all lose because Harper's so upset, right? So she melts down, and we've been saying to her, Harper, repeat after me. You win some, you lose some. Okay, you win some, you lose some. And no lie, this is what Harper does. She'll have lost some. We'll say, Harper, say it with me. You win some, you lose some. And she goes, I lose some. And we're like, no, 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 no. You win some, you lose some. But all she can see is, I lose some. Now listen, we do the same thing, don't we? When we lose, there's no thought that we have won at other points or that there is still positive stuff going on. What we do is we go to a point where we act like a child and we go, oh, I lose some. I, all I did was win, win, win no matter what, what, what? Why am I in this situation where I've lost them? And then spiritually, here's what you do. Lord, why would you let me lose? Or if there was a God, why would this be happening to me? And all of a sudden, you fall into this faith spiral that is very, very childish. You see, God desires for you to be godly and to live as righteous when you're on top of the mountain, and then also when you're on your way down as well. There are going to be times when the Lord calls you to fail. Now listen to this. Look at what David says here in Psalm 15, and we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 5. Very short but powerful. David says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? who may live on your holy hill. Now stop right there for just a minute. What David is about to lay out here for us is how we find fellowship with God in the midst of difficulty. How do we find fellowship with God? And notice this is interesting. He doesn't say who gets to be in heaven. He's saying here in your sanctuary, who gets to be face to face with you, Lord? Who gets to experience that sweet fellowship, that sweet relationship? There's some of you in this room who are saved, but the sweet relationship, that secret friendship with God is deeply missing. David says, here's the remedy for that feeling. Who gets to be in your sanctuary? Who gets that sweet fellowship with you, Lord? Look at what he says. He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. He who speaks the truth from his heart. He who has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur against his fellow man. He who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. I love this last part of verse four. He who keeps his oath even when it hurts. He who lends money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Underline and highlight that word shaken. The opposite of sweet fellowship with God is nervous, anxious, and shaken. Isn't that interesting? What we have in this circumstance is David says, you want sweet, unhindered, passionate fellowship with Almighty God, and you don't want to live nervous, weary, again, anxious about everything that's happening around you. He said, you've got to be a person that lives with these attributes. Your salvation is not dependent upon what you do, but your fellowship with God is directly connected to the actions and the way that we live. I love the illustration where he says, he who keeps his oath, even when it hurts. Sometimes, to do the righteous thing, not always, but sometimes, doing the righteous thing requires pain, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. But we do it because it is right. If you're taking notes, write this down. Sweet fellowship with God is not possible for those living a lie. Let me say that again. 
Sweet, sweet fellowship with God is not possible for those who are living a lie. You are expected to fail in a godly manner. There are going to be some times where the Lord puts in front of you an opportunity where you have to choose between worse and worst. And in that moment, the one that is more godly is the one that you are to jump through even if it causes you great difficulty. There is a great example of that when we look at Genesis chapter 39, and now we're going to start in verse 11. Flip over Genesis 39, the front of your Bible, and we're going to start in verse 11 and continue with the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is a slave. He's been sold into slavery by his brothers in the house of Potiphar. But if you remember, Joseph has a calling on his life to live for God. Not only that, Uh, He's been shown by God through a vision that he's going to be one that is respected by his brothers, uh, that again, the whole world is going to look to him for wisdom and insight. Plus, we found out in our passage last week, Joseph is well-built and handsome, all right? Remember, found that in scripture? He's not only got a call of God on his life, he's not only respected and a great leader, everything he touches in Potiphar's house turns to gold and everything that the Lord, or everything that Potiphar puts him in charge of because the Lord is with him is blessed and taken care of and grows. Well, in this case, we also find out he's good looking and he's in good shape. Now, here's the deal. You want to talk about a guy who has it all that needs to learn humility, That's one of the stories of Joseph's life. In preparing him for leadership, in preparing him to be a good manager and to take care of others under his care, he's got to come to a point where the Lord allows him to be humbled. And he's about to do that through a woman named Potiphar's wife. She's just listed as Potiphar's wife in this passage. Look at what happens. By the way, if you're taking notes, here's our big million dollar question today. What should we remember when the cost of integrity is high? What should we remember when the cost of integrity is high? Look with me, if you will, at Genesis 39, verse 11, and we're going to address that question with the life of Joseph. So Joseph, again, well-built and handsome, smart, he's, uh, he's brilliant, he's, he's, uh, he's got uh, this call of God on his life, the Lord is with him, everything he touches is blessed, he's over everything in the household, all of a sudden he catches the eye of the boss's wife. Potiphar's wife, who also lives in that house, comes up to him one day and says, hey, let me sleep with you. Well, at that point, Joseph goes, ah, I don't think that's such a good idea. You're the boss's wife, number one. Number two, he goes, I would forfeit everything that I've got in this house, the position of leadership. I'd be a terrible leader if I did that for the people that are here in the house. And it says she is undeterred and continues after him day after day, let me sleep with you. Well, here's the deal. Joseph has been set up for failure. There is no way he's able to get around this because he's a slave. He belongs to Potiphar and to his wife. And because of that, he can't just leave. He can't just get out of the situation and take another job. He is trapped in this circumstance and he doesn't know what to do. There's some of you in this room who needed to be here today for this very message. He doesn't know what to do. He has been set up to fail. If he shuns her advances, then she can always just lie about him. In fact, if he pursues her advances, then it'll destroy his soul. He'll live a lie, and then he will still be subject to her and under her control because she'll just lie about their relationship. So he is in an unwinnable situation, and it is ordained that Joseph fail. Now, here's what's powerful. Before we even look into the story today, There are moments in your life that you were ordained to fail. It's a powerful word, Roz, isn't it? There are moments in your life that you were set up to fail. And in this city where we win, win, win all the time, 
This is a tough pill to swallow, but a godly adult, remember adulting is our theme, a godly adult has to come to a point of realization where you know my goal when I've been set up to fail is to fail godly, to do the very best I can and do what God has called me to do even in this unthinkable circumstance. So now look at what happens in verse 11. It says, one day. I want you to circle, highlight, and underline those first two words. Day by day, it says in the passage previous that she came after him. But one day would end up defining his entire life. There are some of you in this room who have endured that one day. You have gone through the one-day experience, and you know that if you make the decision to live godly and to go through that time of difficulty, there is a time when the Lord will stand up on your behalf, the truth will be made known, and your life is going to be much better because of it. But you also know that if you choose the easier path, it may be easier on that one day, but you will pay for it for the rest of your life with regret. That's the moment that we have for Joseph. His entire existence hinges on this one day. Are you ready? One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. So she caught him by his cloak. Underline, caught him by his cloak. And she said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Stop right there for just a minute. For those of you who've been a part of our study, Joseph is naked numerous times as we go through these passages, all right? Okay? In many cases. Remember we talked about naked in a well is better than dead in a ditch? I mean, again, his brothers strip his clothes, throw him naked in the well. It's a good thing he was well-built and handsome, I suppose. Anyway, no, just kidding. Now look, what happens in this passage is one day, the woman who has been pursuing him day after day catches a hold of his cloak and then says the same thing, come to bed with me. And in that moment, no one is around to corroborate. Now, here's what's interesting. That was going to happen at one point or another. There was never going to be a point when they were never alone. And again, he's the slave in this household. So she catches him by the cloak, says, come to bed with me. And then Joseph has a decision to make. She has my clothes. Do I do the awful thing, run naked through the streets without my cloak, or do I do the worst thing and do I sleep with her and put myself completely under her control? That is an unwinnable situation, but listen to me. One failure is more godly than another. If you're taking notes, what should we remember when the cost of integrity is high? Number one, enduring a traumatic experience is better than living a lie. Let me say that again. Enduring a traumatic experience is better than living a lie. Back in the day, uh, the, uh, this, uh, this terminology came up in Europe, but the idea was at, uh, in a new job situation, you go through something they would call baptism by fire. Baptism by fire was the attitude that the situation is new and difficult, and if it was a very high-pressure position, that again, the idea of it being a baptism, not spiritual, this is just a work situation. The idea is baptism is a one-time thing where you are buried with Christ, in our case, and raised to life. Again, baptism by fire in a work setting is there is definitely a before and an after, and you get burned on the way down and on the way back up. You are different after having that experience. There are some of you in this room who have had this experience where you've had to choose enduring trauma rather than living a lie. Choosing the thing that is difficult, that is painful, but godly, 
instead of choosing the thing that in the short run will help you avoid trauma, but will cause you to have to lie for the rest of your days. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. Know what a win is. In Joseph's case, naked in the street was a win. Let me say that again. Know what a win is. In Joseph's case, naked in the street was a win. If you are the type of person that avoids trauma at all costs, you're going to take a tail kicking for the rest of your life. It's just the way that it works. There are going to be times when you have to do the hard thing in order to move forward in victory. The righteous thing is what you are called to do, not the easy thing. Failure can take place in a lot of different circumstances. Failure takes place at work. It can take place in relationships. Sometimes it can even take place with the law where you have to choose a situation where you choose the bad thing over the worst thing, the bad for you thing, rather than the worst thing. Because again, in the short run, it could help you avoid trauma. But in the end, you just don't want to live a lie. Best example I can give to you that in my own life happened with a person that I dated for three and a half years. I've told some of you this story before, but it is truly one of the, the one-day moments in my life that took place. This girl and I met on our very first day at Oklahoma State. She was my very first friend. And because of that, every friend that we made moving forward wasn't just my friend or her friend. It was our friend. We'd been together for so long. About halfway into our relationship, it became evident that we weren't supposed to stay together. But some of you know, if you've been friends and all your friends are friends, the breakup is going to hurt. It's going to be brutal. And not only that, it felt like a failure because we'd been together since the very, very first day. I even got her a job at Red Lobster. We even worked together. (laughs) We worked together. We went to church together. When we went to church, we went to church together. I mean, it was just a brutal situation. But you know with breakups, the person who does the breaking up usually is vilified amongst the friends, and the person who got broken up with has a leg up there in the very beginning. So time began to pass. And then all of a sudden, I upped the ante. I asked her to marry me. What's crazy about that is when I look back on it, even the day I asked her, I remember thinking to myself, this is wrong, this is wrong. It just seemed like we'd been together for so long. It was just what we were supposed to do. That living a lie made a whole lot of sense to me at that point. I'll never forget. It came to a head the first holiday I ever spent away from my parents. I think that's why it came up this year when I was writing my sermon. First holiday I spent away from my parents. I'll never forget, I knew that I needed to be the one to break up, that I needed to be the one, that she wasn't gonna do it, and that I needed to be the one to take that step. And at her parents' house, on Christmas evening, I prayed to God and said, Lord, please don't let me eat or sleep until I do the right thing. I felt like it was gonna hurt so badly for us to break up. And I felt like a botched engagement was like the failure of failures. So 72 hours later, God was very good. I took the step of faith and we broke up. Can I just tell you, it was even more awful than I had imagined it would be. It was terrible. It was brutal. And I stand before you today to say this. There are a whole lot worse things than a botched engagement. A botched life together would have been a whole lot worse. And I don't think I'd be standing before you today as the pastor of Waterfront Church if I had followed through living that lie. Now listen to me. The Lord loves you so much 
that there are times he calls you to failure because he knows it's what's going to be best for you in the long run. I got to live my life and she got to live hers. It was Hades going through it. It was a traumatic experience that still traumatizes me even when we come around the holiday times this, uh, this time of year. It still traumatizes me to this day. But naked in the street is often better than naked in the boss's bed. You know what I mean? I'm telling you, there's a time that you gotta choose failure and fail righteous. And in the end, that ended up being a win for all of us. Some of you might have needed to hear that very specific word today. By the way, Jesus gives us the perfect example of this. Save your spot there in Genesis and flip over to Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. I love this passage because all of humanity hinges on this moment. This is crazy. Remember, without Jesus, we have no hope. Without Jesus' sacrifice for us, there's no way that our sin is covered. Our sin is counted against us. And here's the deal. We get insight into the mind of Christ right here. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41, he's having to choose a traumatic experience to go to the cross for our sins, for sins he didn't commit, to be this moment that we call it seminary, the atonement, the moment that he would become the sacrifice for our sin. Look at what happens in verse 41. It says, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw from beyond the disciples, knelt down and prayed, Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Notice that Jesus says here, Lord, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be crucified. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of the mind of Jesus. Lord, I don't want to do this. It's going to be painful on my body, on my spirit, on me emotionally. I mean, it's going to be awful to watch that, to stare in my mother's eyes as I breathe my last breath. I mean, this is an awful experience. But what does Jesus say? But not my will, but yours be done. When you're choosing between worse and worst, make the godly choice. In this moment, it was ordained since the beginning of time that Jesus would fail, that he would fail on our behalf. And he did it gloriously. He did it unto the Father. And in the end, every time we look at the cross, we think of his sacrifice. We think that he took our place, and therefore we should live for him. It begs the question, are you allowing potential trauma to justify sin? Are you allowing potential trauma to justify sin? Is there something in your life that you know is a failure you need to accept and you're avoiding it with trauma that's causing a cover-up? In Joseph's case, and we can flip back over to Genesis 39, but in Joseph's case, the godly thing is to fail naked in the street rather than to fall into this temptation and try to preserve his life for the day by sleeping with the boss's wife. Now look at what happens next. There's fallout from this. Verse 13. It says, When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew, underline this Hebrew, has been caught or has been uh, brought here to make sport of us. So he came in to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Two things that are happening here you need to see. What she then does is call everybody together, and then she refers to him as this Hebrew. 
Underline and highlight this Hebrew. What she has done there is just thrown a racial slur right there at this young man. She has slandered him right off the bat, and she is basically tipping off her hand that she was the one who was sinful here because she has thrown out this wicked racial slur right off the bat. And then she said, he came here to make sport of me. He came here to sleep with me, and I screamed. Now, one of the scholars wrote this, that it is possible that Joseph was the one who screamed when he ran out, and that it was so loud she had to justify that it was her scream that happened, all right? So here's what's interesting. She has taken his voice, she has slandered his ethnicity, and then she has told a vicious, bold-faced lie. If you're taking notes, what should we remember when the cost of integrity is high? Number one, enduring a traumatic experience is better than living a lie. And number two, vicious lies and hate speech will always eventually be subject to the truth. Let me say that again. Vicious lies and hate speech will always eventually be subject to the truth. What she says is a lie, and it will always come out. You ever had that, this will happen to some of you after Thanksgiving, you ever had that rogue um, Tupperware dish that you put leftovers in, in the refrigerator, and then one day, two day, three months have passed, all right? And then all of a sudden, there you have that rogue Tupperware dish, and you don't remember what's in it, all right? And here's the deal. You could speculate on it. You could speculate on what it is, but there is a moment, right, when you open that bad boy, and the whole house is going to smell whatever it was that was in there. That's the truth. Hate speech, vicious lies. You can talk about what's in that Tupperware dish, but one day, that Tupperware dish is going to open up and the truth is going to be evident. And then you have, have, basically, your bed's been made up for you. That one day you decided, do I embrace the hard road and the truth or do I embrace the cover-up and do I embrace a lie? If you're taking notes, write this down. To choose a side that requires a cover-up is to choose the eventual loser. Let me say that again. To choose a side that requires a cover-up is to choose the eventual loser. There is no judgment on you today if that's where you fall, if you chose the cover-up. What I'm just telling you is the truth comes out eventually, and we're going to talk in a minute about what to do with that truth. But if you are on the front side of this, when your one day comes, choose what is righteous Choose what is right, even if it's difficult, and then you don't have to be ashamed when the top is pulled off of that Tupperware dish. You don't have to be ashamed when the truth comes out. Another great passage on this is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. Save your spot there in Genesis and flip over to Ephesians. This is that beautiful passage on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says about the truth. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, look at this, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Stop right there for just a minute. What we find here from the Apostle Paul is when you are trying to stand up in the most impossible of situations, the first two pieces of the armor of God he lays out are number one, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Those two things on the worst day of your life are so deeply important to you. The belt of truth. Truth holds your entire argument together. And righteousness protects your heart so that you don't take a fatal wound. Righteousness and truth are what hold you together. When there is no truth to your argument, you're fighting with your pants down. Do you hear me? 
When truth is not a part of your argument, you're fighting with your pants down. When righteousness is not a part of your makeup, when you don't allow what is right and righteous to defend you, it's just a matter of time until you are fatally wounded and the argument pierces your heart. Now, just for the record, I know firsthand vicious lies and hate speech still stinking hurt. Short story. So back in the day, some of you have heard a bit of this before, but back in the day, there was a job that I had to quit without having another job. It all boiled down to one specific thing. I was already having trouble in this job, and I could tell they were trying to get me, but it all came to a head, ironically, right after the last mission trip we would bring students on to D.C. about 10 years ago. We had 75 high school students that we brought with us on mission to D.C., And I'll never forget, this was when GPSs had just come out. And uh, back before that, you had to print MapQuest directions. Do you remember that? Remember MapQuest? We had to print all these MapQuest directions. And so we like handed people a packet and it was like, here's how you get to, you know, the capital. I mean, we just hand them that and they would just figure it out, right? Well, back in those days, Apple had just started doing GPS directions. But the GPS on phones were really, really slow. So you had to buy this like mounted Garmin thing, all right? And again, it would sit on the dash and you go through. Some of you still have that. That's awesome, all right? Okay? But you had to buy this big mounted dash thing, download directions and all that stuff to it. All that to say, with our student ministry, we had told our leaders, do not use your iPhone, okay? Bring a mounted GPS if you're one of our drivers and we want you to be able to drive from location to location, okay? Most of the leaders listened, three did not, okay? Those three that didn't listen then came to me and said, what do we do? And I said, it's okay. I'll take out a PO. We had to do that in our office. I'll take out a PO. We have some money for it. I said, we'll buy three GPS units and you guys can have those and then we'll give them to the intern staff when they go to do home visits. Well, when I got done, I come back from the mission trip and sitting on my desk is a sheet of paper that says church credit card used for personal expense and it's in the amount of the three GPSs. And it's asking for me to sign at the bottom that I am acknowledging that I made this mistake. Well, I go into the finance office and I go, what in the world is this? I said, I didn't, I didn't buy myself three GPSs. And the head of finance said, those are a luxury item. I said, where is it written that they're a luxury item? And he said, you just don't listen to anybody. He said, just sign the document. And he said, if you'll sign the document, he said, then we'll dock it from your paycheck and all will be done. Well, I called my dad. And my dad was also a minister. And I said, Dad, what do I do here? And he goes, you quit. I said, that's what I keep thinking. But I said, can you tell me why I quit? I said, I can feel it, but can you tell me why? He said, you quit because if there's a document that says that a minister used a church credit card for a personal expense... He said, they'll be able to hold that over your head for the rest of your life. He said, you quit. At that point, I did. I walked in, and I quit. I turned it in, and I still have the sheet of paper to this day. It was one of those things where I couldn't believe that it was real. Sometimes the Lord will provide a little, not a trophy, but just like a piece of evidence for you where you can look back and be like, yeah, that really happened. That really happened. I've still got the sheet of paper. I'll never forget. They shoot into spin mode. And after that, I had turned in my two weeks notice and the head of the personnel committee came back and said, listen, 
We want to give you those two weeks. It's been awful for you up here. We understand. We want to give you those two weeks, and, and you can go ahead and just, just leave. And so I was like, okay, that'd be great. I, mean, I, I had used the word nightmare. It's been a nightmare in this position. I just wanted to go. So I do leave. But then the vicious lies begin, and it didn't come out the same way that you would think. The way the vicious lie came out is when a minister leaves abruptly, then all of a sudden... They think that there's something that happened. They had offered me a non-disclosure agreement in exchange for money um, in order for me to not tell the story. Another thing that my dad very wisely gave me advice was he said, don't sign a stinking thing they put in front of you. He said, you don't need it. He goes, you can work a job at Red Lobster if you need to. And I did get an application at one point. <laughs> but he said, don't sign anything. He said, your story is your story. So I didn't. So... After it's done, people come up and say, what did Zach do? And the response was, I can't say. And then they would say, well, did he do something bad? Did he do something immoral, unethical, illegal? I can't say. Here's the deal. The true story would come out in time. But I can't say was so stinking hateful and it turned into my friends. I really understood the book of Job after that because I had friends that would call me and they'd go, hey, Zach, man, heard about what happened. Dude, what'd you do? What'd you do? And I'd go, nothing. I quit over three GPS units. And they'd go, man, nobody just quits over three GPS units. Confess, man, confess. And here's the deal. It hurt me so deeply in that moment to have to go through and endure that setting. But the truth always comes out. The godly have got to have the wherewithal, the strength to stand up and to wait. That first year, nobody would touch me with a 10-foot pole until the rest of the story came out. And then after that, can I tell you what's interesting? If you were the person who's been able to endure, I had one really, really awful, traumatic, terrible year. And then I got offered jobs I was way underqualified for after that. Because once you've failed but failed godly, that story gets around a whole lot faster than the lies and the vicious hate that people tried to spread about you. Hadn't you figured out that this hill works the same way as well? You gotta do the right thing. You gotta walk that baptism of fire. Go through the time of pain and difficulty, and in the end, you have placed your fate in the hands of Almighty God. I hadn't done much right in my life. But that was one I would do it a thousand times out of a thousand the exact same way. And can I just tell you this? I had a great dad to walk me through it. There's some of you in this room who sit there and go, I don't even know how I would begin to walk that path. Look at me. God has placed people in your path and in your life that can offer great godly wisdom and insight. They can offer encouragement and courage so that you can walk that razor thin line and do what he's called you to do breastplate of righteousness and belt of truth mean that the enemy cannot fatally wound you. Let's keep moving. Look at what it says next. We're almost we're out of time. Ah, look at what it says next. Genesis chapter 39. By the way, a little, uh, little question here for you. Is your armor held together by the truth? Is your armor held together by the truth? Now look with me if you will. Genesis 39 verses 16 through 19. It says she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. 
Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought here, notice the racial slur again, that Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. The story doesn't even make sense. Look at verse 19. When the master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Stop right there for just a minute. I want you to notice that her story did not gain any traction with the household. The household had seen her antics before. They'd seen the way that she had treated others before. That's laid out, by the way, later in Genesis. We'll get to that soon. But here's the deal. In this passage, she can catch no audience with the workers. If she had, then they would have gone, man, let's grab pitchforks and go after him. But they didn't do that because because they knew it wasn't true about Joseph. But she's found an audience with the master. She's found an audience with Potiphar. If you're taking notes, this last point today, what should we remember when the cost of integrity is high? Number one, enduring a traumatic experience is better than living a lie. Number two, vicious lies and hate speech will always eventually be subject to the truth. And number three, initially, some people may believe the lies. Initially, some people may believe the lies. The people in the house didn't believe it because they'd experienced it firsthand. Potiphar believed it. If you think that in your life that when you stand for the truth that everyone's going to rise up and call you blessed all the time, you are sorely mistaken. There are going to be times when you are on the side of the truth and people will stand against you. There is no unanimous decision in this life, so much so that the God who created the universe says at the end of the times, it's sheep and goats. At the end of days, there are those who believe in the message of Jesus and those who don't, and each have had the wonders of the universe to look at to realize there is a God who intelligently created all this world for us. Initially, some people are going to believe the lies. If you've got one last quote here, let me give it to you. Your eternity is not contingent on what other people think. Your eternity is not contingent upon what other people think. Your eternity is contingent on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That and that alone. When others hate on you, and then worse than that, when others hate on you and other people believe the fake hate that's being spewed at you, it's still not about you. It's about the truth and about us being godly, living godly in the face of adversity. This is something that's been lost in our current culture, and I'm just as guilty of it as anyone else. We want people to like us. But the problem is, what happens when people liking us comes right in, dis right in, in, in conflict with what is right and what is true? In that circumstance, we are to live as a light that is godly, that is acceptable, that is, that is, or that is accepting, that is kind. But the truth, the truth will set you free, Scripture says. The truth, the truth is what we were called to defend at all costs. It begs the question, do you value others' opinions more than the truth? Do you value others' opinions more than the truth? The lid on the Tupperware dish is going to come off at some point. Make sure you're on the side of the truth. The Tupperware dish example resonates with me as well because it stinks no matter what's in there, right? If it's been in there that long, it's going to stink. The stink is at least bearable if you're right on what's in there. Remember the truth. And remember that some people initially are going to believe the lies. That also goes for eternity. It's why scripture says that one day, 
every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, the truth is going to be laid bare for all of existence. Will you receive and be on the side of the truth? Or do you value others' opinions more than the truth? I love you guys. Thanks for listening today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, it's an adult thing to choose to live with integrity. And we've got to be willing to pay the price when the cost is low and we're celebrated or when the cost is high and we're not necessarily celebrated. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to choose a traumatic experience. It is the godliest thing that I could possibly do. Now, just for the record, it is not always God's will that you choose to hurt. It is God's will that you are doing, or that you are willing to do whatever it takes to live as righteous. With nobody looking around but just me, if that's you and your one day moment is today, with nobody looking but just me, I just want to pray for you. If you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me, it's time that I choose the trauma over what seems at the moment to be easy. With nobody looking, if that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, so many of you. Y'all can put your hands down. That takes guts. I'm going to pray for you, but if that was you, I want to encourage you. Just say this simple prayer before God. Just say, God, I choose the tough path. I choose the tough path. Maybe you pray it this way. God, I choose to do what's right. Second, maybe there are some of you that would say, Zach, it's time I come clean. It's time that I embrace the truth. I've been living a lie. And it's time that I honestly embrace the truth of my situation, of my circumstances. I'm tired of fighting with my pants down. I'm tired of fighting without righteousness to guard my heart. It's time I come clean and tell the truth. With nobody looking but just me, and I really want nobody looking on this one, if that's you making that commitment today, if you just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. It's powerful. It's powerful. That's powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. That took a lot of guts. I want to encourage you. I'm going to pray for you. But just before you can get right with other people, you got to get right with God. I want to encourage you just to say this simple prayer before the Lord. Lord, here's the truth. And then let him know. Lord, here's the truth. Help me to walk in victory. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, I've already been through my one day. But honestly, I'm still waiting for victory. I'm still waiting for the truth to come out. With nobody looking but just me, you are very dear to my heart today. My prayer for you is that you would persevere, that you would remember that someday, one day, the lid is coming off the Tupperware dish, that someday the truth is going to be evident, and you just need to hold strong. You just need to hold true with nobody looking but just me. If that's you and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would persevere and wait for that day that the truth comes. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you, but you just pray this simple prayer. God, give me courage in a double portion. God, give me courage in a double portion to wait for you to show up and act on my behalf. 
I'm going to pray for us and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. Lord, for those who are here today needing to choose the trauma over what is sinful and wrong, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you would help them to fail with righteousness that you would help them to embrace that path and then, Lord, uphold them with your righteous right hand. Lord, for those who are here today that need to come clean to speak the truth, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ you would wrap your arms around them, that you would give them great courage and great strength in a double portion. And Lord, I pray that you would use them powerfully, that they would buckle that truth around their waist and that they would be able to fight forward without their pants falling down. And Lord, for those who are here that need to persevere, Give them a double portion of encouragement, strength, and courage today. And Lord, help them to stand strong for you as they wait for the truth. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.